Welcome to the World Outspoken feature. World Outspoken exists to support culture makers speaking good news into the cities they make. One of the ways we support culture makers is by highlighting inspiring makers having a profound impact on the shape of their city. In today's podcast, we sit down with former NBC Network News journalist and owner of Local Boy Creative, Hugo Perez, to discuss the responsibility of storytellers. As a storyteller, marketer, and reporter, Hugo gives shape to the world and how we live in it. Today, he pulls back the curtain to show us the behind-the-scenes world of news and marketing. Now, here's Hugo discussing the city he makes. Hey, and welcome back to the World Outspoken feature. I'm your host, Emmanuel Padilla. Today we have Hugo Perez with us. Hugo is a professional storyteller. He develops strategies and content for a variety of clients around the country as an owner of a boutique creative agency in Chicago called Local Boy Creative. He is an experienced brand builder, creative catalyst, innovative strategist, and integrated marketer. Having worked in senior roles as a variety of global companies and marketing agencies over the years, He began his career as a journalist at NBC Network News, where he earned an Emmy Award for his work. Hugo has traveled and worked extensively all around the world and considers himself a dreamer, a wild one, and a roaring lamb. So, Hugo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on board. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Uh, At World Outspoken, we've done now uh, a musician. We've done a camp that does arts in East Denver. And now we've also done a storyteller who's done the, the real gamut of it in, in the sense that you've done music, you've done reporting, you've done marketing, you've been in television. I mean, you've done it all. One of my life approaches is um, taken from the movie Dead Poet Society where they talk um, about sucking the marrow out of life. And I certainly am intending to suck as much marrow out of this life sure. as I can. Yeah, you're always busy. You're always traveling. Indeed. So Ugo is a close friend of mine, and he's been connected uh, to our church as well. And so that's part of the connection. But we're excited, really, to talk about his work, the things that we don't always get to see. So Ugo, we'll just jump right into it. Uh, Why don't you tell us how important is storytelling to culture making? You know, um, in today's world that's changing so rapidly and with so much interaction with digital channels and opportunities and seemingly platforms for anyone and everywhere, being able to tell a good story is becoming more and more important. Um, There's a lot of noise that we have around us, and the storytellers are those that can take that noise and coalesce it into something that's meaningful, that's valuable, that's going to stand the test of time, or that's going to help us navigate through what's going on. So storytelling today is utterly important, um, and as culture makers, people that are trying to influence what's happening around us or make sense of it, it becomes um, one of the top skills that you should have or the top kinds of people that you should have around you. Yeah, I think that point of the idea that storytellers help us make sense of the world around us is pretty powerful. Yeah, when I think about that, um, you know, it feels like every time you you wake up in the morning, there's another shift that's going on around us. And um, the world has become much smaller. Um, it feels like we can touch every corner. So how do you make sense of all this stuff? And how do you process? And how do you then infuse your your faith and your emotions and your your relationships and all this stuff? You often need help just to understand or at least get 
pointed in the right directions. Yeah. It makes me think of, have you ever read Mario Vargas Llosa? He's a Peruvian author. He wrote a book called The Storyteller. Mm. Um, in it, it's very interesting. He talks about the Amazonian, the Peruvian Amazonian tribe, the Machiguengas. And he talks about they have a role in that society that's not a priest, but also a religious or spiritual leader, though he's not a part of the religious system. He's not a mayor, but he's still somewhat political. Mm -hmm. He's also not an entertainer, and yet he entertains the tribe. Hmm. Uh, this particular figure called the storyteller, El Hablador, uh, that particular figure is responsible for shaping reality for the tribe. And so it's very confusing because the political figure, confusing for people who aren't a part of the tribe, I mean. Sure. The political liter leaders look to the storyteller. The religious leaders look to the storyteller. The entertainers emulate the storyteller. So the storyteller is at the center heart of everything that that tribe does. I love it. And um, I haven't read that book, but now I'm definitely putting it on my list because that sounds exactly like the kind of person that I try to be and the role that I try to play. Um, and when I've studied storytelling, which by the way has become kind of a little bit of a common phrase, everyone's a storyteller nowadays, it feels yeah. like. But I take that title very seriously because I know that since the dawn of creation, um, we've told stories mm -hmm. and stories um, can work across any culture, any race, any age, any sex, it doesn't matter, we yeah. all tell stories. Yeah. And so the importance of that role, I've taken really to heart, and I, so I value it very strongly. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of a quote. I think Var Vargas Llosa in the book, he says that storytellers are primordial. They mm. exist before time. And so... It, Dope. Very interesting. Like it. Since you said that, why don't you help us define that word, just so that everyone knows, what do we mean? When we talk about being a storyteller, and we talk about you being a storyteller in marketing and reporting, those kinds of things, why don't we say, here, here's what we mean when we say, I'm a storyteller. Yeah, I, I think the storyteller is the person, to borrow from something I said earlier, that can coalesce what's happening, put a fine point to it, um, put some definition, some shape to what's happening, whatever the assignment might be, so to speak, and make it easy to digest and consume. And so it takes on a lot of different shapes and forms and approaches and styles, but in essence, it's grabbing the ideas and making it possible for others to understand process and move forward with those ideas yeah a storyteller makes the world palatable absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and that's that's at the heart of culture culture yeah. helps us process the world that's why the i think given. even though the term storyteller is very popular not everyone is a storyteller um i can tell you something but i can't necessarily get you to imbibe that to infuse that into your thinking into your mindset and carry that with you mm -hmm. a true storyteller can yeah absolutely a true storyteller changes who you are absolutely right? so why did you choose to do that because that's i mean given mario vargas Llosa, given what you've talked about uh, it's a very important role it's at the heart of culture so why choose to be a storyteller you know um for me storytelling um became critical tied into politics okay um when i was a little boy I have no idea why, but I was really drawn to watching political coverage on television. Okay. And I remember watching a presidential debate when President Ronald Reagan was running for office. Hugo's been alive for a while, guys. You know, <laughs> brown don't frown, but you know. Um, I was a little boy. It was his second term, um, and he was debating. And I remember being transfixed by the words that he was sharing. And here's this guy that was potentially going to be the leader of the free world. Yeah. And I remember just really clearly having this thought that said, I want to be the kind of person that 
captures what's being said and shares it with others. Hmm. And I was watching at NBC, and I can recall clearly Tom Brokaw was moderating the debate, who was the anchor of NBC at the time, and all that coalesced. So I realized I wanted to be that kind of a person. And then since that point, funny enough, everything that I've done um, professionally, everything that I've done as hobbies, everything that I've done for fun has had some element of how do I get to tell a story in that. I'm the first to volunteer. I'll scribe. I'll be the first one to report. I'll send the emails. I'll organize it because I want to be the one that shapes that idea. Um, it's always been something that's driven me. Yeah, and how providential. You ended up actually working for NBC, and that was the starting point. A absolutely. I would say providential, um, but really inspired by that moment because when I – um, interviewed at NBC, I recalled for them that moment. I retold that moment, and I never wanted to go anywhere but NBC, so I pursued it, yeah. um, and I prepared myself for that. So um, very um, great to have been able to take that next step and get to NBC. That's amazing. Was, was it a question he asked, or you know, was he challenging the the debate, or what, what was it that really... Um, I like the fact that um, Tom Brokaw at the moment, at that time, which, by the way, I got a chance to produce a story for Tom at one point while I was at NBC, and it was Amazing. one of those full circle moments. Um, the stars on my eyes were so big, he had no idea the impact that he had on me. But yeah. what I liked was his level of preparation. He understood what was happening at the moment. He understood context. He understood history. He understood the implications. And he was able to craft questions that were just cutting through, and, oh, man, that just inspired me so much i wanted to be that kind of person yeah that makes sense it, it, not that i want to harp on that book but it reminds me of what we just talked about with, with the storyteller of the machiguengas all people look to him political figures religious leaders right he is the person who has to know a bit about everything and be able to recount it absolutely and so in my life today and you know as an adult i i have no problem those that know me you know me um would tell you i am not a shy person right i don't have a problem um being in the spotlight but it's not about the spotlight. It's about the shaping that's uh, what's impactful to me. So I prefer to be always the guy that is the confidant, the, the person on the side that's helping to move things along, the guy that's giving a word in someone's ear that's helping them think of something they didn't. Because um, I think that's culture making. That's mm -hmm. me being able to shape. And so my ongoing thought, my ongoing prayer has always been, God, use me to be someone that impacts the world, but not just impacts the world because, you know, I lived in it, but I want to literally shift things in the world by the things that I do. Yeah, and it's interesting because most people who are church background, Christians, and want to be storytellers probably pursue preaching and probably pursue that pastoral role. But you chose a, a more outside, forward-facing, some would say, more dangerous role. I'm not sure that that's true, but... Um, but certainly a forward-facing road, which is pretty fascinating. In many ways, I consider myself a preacher, but I'm a preacher that's out in the, in the world at large and not in, behind a pulpit. So yeah, yeah. when I was seven years old, my uncle, who's a preacher, um, brought me up to the pulpit, and he told the congregation, one day this guy's going to be a preacher in, a, um, in front of a, a, a flock. Um, and today, I'm still not a preacher, and I'm not a, I'm leading a flock, but I'm certainly doing my best to share good things and yeah. move people forward when you're influencing the hearts of people absolutely i'm doing my best to try to do that yeah so let's go back to nbc that's where that's where it started for yep. you if i'm correct there yeah. right so it started at nbc that's where you started your first work as a storyteller specifically as a reporter uh you know of the stories you reported which stick out 
for being most influential, especially influential as it sure. relates to influencing the culture. So just a, a quick clarification, I was what was called an off-air reporter. I was a producer, so I wasn't the guy that you saw on TV all the time. Yep. But on television news, 80, 90% of the work that's done is done by the producers. They're reporting and telling the story yep. that's given to the reporter. Yep. Two stories stand out during my time at NBC that um, have shaped my mindset and, and the way that I've approached life. Um, I got to um, cover... Um, a presidential campaign when I was at NBC, I traveled with Bob Dole when he ran for president. And for three months, I got to crisscross the United States. I visited 125 cities in three months. I got to see people in every walk of life, blue collar, white collar, rural, um, urban, every single kind of person. And it was fascinating to see how this country is woven together. Mm -hmm. And I was so honored to be able to get such an eyewitness opportunity to see the world at large and see then how words shape things and see how um, the way we present ourselves change. And when you travel with a presidential campaign, what you start learning is they have what's called a stump speech, which is their traditional speech. It never changes. But the reactions of the audience were always slightly different depending on their mindsets and, yeah. and their backgrounds and their opportunities. So I was fascinated. I devoured that. And by the end of my three months there, I was able to tell the stump speech as good as the as the candidate you had it himself, memorized memorized <laughs> but I, I had the faces memorized too and i have a photo album at my house with all these faces of people in the crowd that every once in a while i just like looking through and it reminds me of those experiences of seeing how yeah, people reacted absolutely. very much parallel to the things that we're seeing today in the political environment um the second story that truly impacted me um i was the first national um reporter at columbine um the first wow. really big mass school shooting that people um, there was one or two before that. I, w I was also at Paducah, which was truly the first mm -hmm. school shooting in the U.S. But Columbine was the one that made this into a national conversation. Um, and I was there while still things were still unfolding. And I spent about a month on the ground in Columbine just trying to uncover the whys. Um, and it just, again, gave me an insight into the hearts of people. My first assignment when I landed um, over um, in Colorado for the story was... Um, I got a call from the, the news desk in New York telling me we have a, an idea that we think it's these kinds of kids that did this. Go find the kids and or go find the parents. Whoa. And often when you, got, you get assigned as a reporter on an assignment like that, they're not telling you what to ask or how to ask it. They're just telling you direction. So in your mind, you start processing right away, what am I going to tell this parent when I see them? Mm -hmm. And I was going around and tracking down kids and knocking on doors and trying to formulate how do I tell the story and how do I get them to tell me their story. And um, it was really impactful, again, to see the reactions, the emotions, um, how people were gathering together. And um, one moment that stands out the most to me was um, there was one morning after the shooting where there was a black father who lost his child with a white boy who lost his sister. And they did an interview together with Katie Couric. Um, that's, you know, an iconic moment in time for that. And to see the racial um, connection there as a person of color was so meaningful. Yeah. Um, loss is loss is loss. And they were able to go through that and pass that and see they just needed to be together. And yeah. the black father held on to the white boy's hand. And it was just such a meaningful and moving moment. That is a powerful moment. It's interesting. I, I never know where where to draw the line in terms of reporters are they influencing the present in terms of culture in 
in relation to the kids, I wonder, right? As you talk to them, interact with them, how is that taking shape in their lives? Is it helping them process as they tell the stories? Is it, right? So is it influencing the present or is it giving shape to what the future will be? I, I always wonder about yeah. where does the role stop or start? And maybe it's both. I mean, what do you think? You know, I can't speak for all um, journalists, um, but I certainly took my responsibility very serious. I was an eyewitness to, to the world and I got to be the one that chose what the world saw. So I really took my, my role as an impartial um, capture of the story really seriously. And I was I tried to be very conscientious about the words that I chose and the tone and the approach because I wanted to provide a platform for people to tell stories. Um, today, I think that's evolved a lot. I think reporters fall on two sides. There's the traditional reporters that are more in line with what I just described, and there's more of the reporter that wants to kind of be a little bit part of the story as well. And I think that's influenced because of digital um, and social media and the desire to just kind of make a name for yourself. So yeah, gain a following. Absolutely. So we, we, we have a little bit of both right now, sometimes a little bit too much of the I want to be and I'm shaping the story the way I want it to be. And I think that's where the danger is. And that's where that whole fake news idea comes in. There's certainly fake news out there. There are certainly people that are shaping and editing and subtracting and adding parts to stories all the time. But there are certainly journalists that are just trying to capture the story as they see it at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the fake news idea. We'll, we'll go ahead and ask that. And then I want to circle back around to Columbine yep. for a minute. But, you know, what do you think about the state of the fourth estate, if we can ask it that way? I, I think um, we're in a little bit of trouble from the point of view that we've, we've lost some credibility. And the reason we've lost that credibility is because of what I described, these desire to make a name at the moment and, and there's not enough process anymore. And there's such a race to just get it out there that we're not being as conscientious as we should be. In all my um, education to become a journalist and all my experience as a journalist and all my conversations with some of the greats in the journalism world, it was always be aware of your moment and the experience and what this means um, and what you're representing and what you're trying to get across. And I don't see that always there. So I think that's damaging the fourth estate right now. I still think it's crucial and I am glad that the U.S. particularly embraces the fourth estate. I think we need it for a good democracy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You need checks and balances. You need someone that can call you out on stuff. Yeah. Um, so I hope that, you know, we can get past some of these issues. Yeah, it is concerning. It's it's alarming that that, that would be the case, that there yeah. would be you know, versions of the story rather than the story. I heard once that, uh, I don't know if I heard it from a reporter, but uh, someone said that, that there was a shift between telling what is true to being the first to tell it. I don't know if that it, it potentially is. And I think part of it is in, in the training for the journalists is our job is to tell what's happening now, take our emotions out of it. They used to teach us to be impartial. I think it's impossible to be impartial because as a human being, you bring in right. um, prejudices your assumptions. Yep. and assumptions. It's just humanity. Um, but there are ways to just report facts. Mm -hmm. And we live in a world that wants color commentary added to everything. Right. So totally. So let me ask you about that uh, inside scoop, if you will, of the world of the reporter and how it works and stuff. I'll tell you, I know very little, but I know that there's at least two types of news, right? There's the hard news, I believe is the is that mm -hmm. the technical term. Yeah. And then there's soft news. And then there's something called the kicker, 
what are those things and, and how do they affect us, right? The people who watch and experience the news. Sure. So hard news and soft news are, are the two basic um, denominators there. Hard news is anything that's breaking in the moment, that's a factual experience, an event, um, something that's happening out there that has an impact on the world. So Columbine would be... Columbine is hard, hard news. news. You know, the politi- political scene right now is hard news. Um, someone robbing a bank is hard news. Okay. Soft news are more human interest, lifestyle, features kind of stuff. Got it. Um, here's where, and a kicker just to define that, and I'll tell you how they mix together. Kicker on most news broadcasts, the kicker is the final story. And in most um, traditional setups for news broadcasts, they try to give you something soft at the end to leave you with a good feeling at the end. They don't want you to just carry on the weight of the heaviness. So if you pay attention to any news broadcast that's out there, more than likely the beginning first um, portion of it is the headlines, all the hard-hitting stuff, and then it starts getting, and they're usually shorter and to the point, and there might be multiple reports, different angles, different areas, and as the broadcast goes along, it starts getting softer. You get weather towards the end on the local newscast, or you get sports, or you get a human interest story on the national newscast, something that's more touchy-feely so that you leave feeling good. Interesting. Because they want you to keep coming back, which is good. Right, they want you to keep watching. The challenge is, because of the way that journalism is changing, hard and soft are merging in some ways. Really? Um, because people today, in the storytelling that they prefer, want a story that captures them, that makes them excited, interested, emotional. So the hard news, if I'm reporting there was a bank robbery, and the oldest is, bank robbery happening at 3 o'clock, they stole $10,000, two people were hurt, the cops got them. Today is... Little Joan, the bank teller who has three kids at home and is having a hard time um, feeding them, got robbed at the bank today. It just got became it. softer. It became more human interest yeah. because that captures today's audience more. Got it. And so we're merging those a little bit more. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? I think it's um, in line with what happens with storytelling. It evolves with the generations, with the people, with the audiences. I think it requires more conscientiousness of making sure that as you're telling more of a human interest angle that you're not um, avoiding the facts that you need to tell. Yeah. So that makes me think of, again, I know very little about reporting. And so these questions are coming from someone who sure, is no rather ignorant. But so, so I'm gaining my, re- my knowledge of it from an outside source. But I watched the movie Nightcrawler, mm-hmm. right? In, in preparation for this time of conversation, I watched this movie and I get the sense of, wait a minute. This guy's crafting a story. He's providing some interest, if you will. There's an emotional appeal to the story, but it's also real dark. And so my question as I was watching this is, what responsibility does the reporter, does the storyteller have to communities that are under-resourced or communities that are impoverished or communities that are experiencing uh, difficulties in terms of violent crime? I think of our city, right? We're here in Chicago reporting down on the south side. Whenever my family from back home in Florida, where I'm originally from, whenever they call me, they call me and say, how are you doing in Chicago? We heard about this, that, and the other. And they're usually talking about something that specifically happened in a pocket neighborhood here in the city. So I wonder, what responsibility does a reporter have to that neighborhood, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting question because I would say, in the big picture thought, I don't think you can pigeonhole or, or hold accountable a reporter for a specific responsibility for a neighborhood. Why? Because their job is to report on what's assigned by their organization. Mm-hmm. So they, ha- you know, I had beats that I was responsible for, so I was bringing stories to light. But at the end of the day, it's not my broadcast. 
if I want to be responsible for a neighborhood, a community, a people group or whatever, I can do independent journalism and make that my my thing. And there's plenty of reporters that do that. And those are, are great people that, that cover that um, kind of approach. Mm-hmm. In the big picture, you work for a newspaper, you work for a news organization, you work for an NBC News. You're contributing to what they've laid out as their overall focus. Um, I remember when I joined NBC... Um, at the time that I was there, I, I was there in the late 90s, um, there, wasn't, there was not an interest in the U.S. on international news. Hmm. And I was very much you know, passionate about bringing the plight of the world to the eyes and the ears of the American public. But I remember the, the international editor came into a meeting one day and he said, guys, I love that you love these stories, but the audience doesn't watch it. They turn off the TV when you do that. So we can't do those stories. Hmm. So what was my responsibility? As someone that cared about that stuff, I kept pitching them, but I was looking for angles that would tie them into the interests of the audience here. Got it. If I don't have eyeballs watching or ears hearing or you know reading um, um, the print that I'm putting together, it doesn't matter, right? It's yeah. like you know that tree falling in the forest. No one's going to hear it. Right, but you have to enculturate people, right? You have to slowly you know. get them to the place where they value those And so here's stories. the role of the reporter that I think the, the responsibility Gain the respect of your peers, your leaders, your mentors, your people around them so that you have more of a voice to enculturate people. Mm -hmm. So when I was at NBC, I was one of a very small handful of Latino reporters. So I pitched stories that were Latino-focused all day, every day. (laughs) Nice. Every time someone had said anything that had anything in Spanish or had anything inclination, I volunteered. I'll go fact check it. I'll give you the research. I'll give you everything. You were here for it. I was there. (laughs) I didn't get stories on often. And I look back on my reporter's notebooks from those times and I pitched dozens of stories that are hot stories today. If we would have done them back then, we would have been so ahead of the curve. Right. But there was no appetite. But I, I, I believe, I, I feel good that I helped set the groundwork mm-hmm. for what came afterwards. Yeah. And so that's where I think the responsibility is of the reporter. I think that's helpful. I think it informs the role of the reporter in the city that we make, the yeah. culture that we create, and how we then can create values and, and desires for those stories that often we're kind of blind to. And, and here's again where I think a positive of social media and digital I, back then, I, I reported, I used to write stories for what now is msnbc.com. Mm-hmm. We didn't really have those terms and stuff, blogs and stuff. So I would do a, a web um, journal, a web reporter's notebook because we didn't have that. Yeah. Very limited. We didn't have lots of readers. Today, if I couldn't get my story on the air or in print, I'm going to go write it on a blog somewhere. Yep. I'm going to podcast it. I'm gonna, there's so many different ways to get stories out that matter. Mm-hmm. And eventually they start coalescing and, and having impact and value. Yeah. So I hear you say that more stories, we're all better off. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because I know I, I, I get the sense that that's debated. Well, it's debated by people that are saying it's too much. So I think there's something to be said about quality. Correct. For sure. And there's something said about approaches. But... We have a lot of different ways to tell lots of different stories. You know, I'll transition it to the world of marketing and advertising. I tell my story and my clients all the time, calm down. You know, I can tell a lot of your stories. I don't have to just tell it once. Mm -hmm. I can, every single day, I can tell a different facet, a different nuance, different. It's the same thing with any kind of storytelling that we have. And that's the part that I enjoy and and value. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. So you went from reporting to marketing. How long ago was that? How many years have you been in marketing? Um, I left formally the world of journalism in about 2005. Okay. Um, I still, you know, after that, for even till now, 
an occasion I'll do a freelance article or mm-hmm. something for for an outlet somewhere because you know once it's in your blood you know you're you're a reporter you know can't go you, back you can't go back <laughs> ask anyone again that knows me well i'm the first one that's asking 35 questions about yes. everything yes i go to you for my political absolutely news. <laughs> so that's always in there but i switched over because the world of journalism is is all encompassing um during the time that i was a full-time reporter or producer at nbc i was on call 24 hours a day seven days a week i lived with a suitcase in my car and they would call me, and there were so many times that they would just say, get to the nearest airport. When you get there, there'll be a ticket waiting, and you just go. So at some point, I needed to do other things in my life, and I wanted to experience other things, and I didn't just want to be um, in that. And, you know, unfortunately for me as a Latino, um, progress was a little slow in terms of moving up the ranks. So I wasn't going as fast as I wanted. So if I would have gotten to go a little bit higher and got in more opportunities for roles that I was seeking, I may have still been in journalism because I still to this day would say it's probably the career that has brought me the most joy and satisfaction. Okay. Um, there's something about just being that eyewitness to history that's really amazing. Absolutely. Um, but it just was Spe- Speaking of which, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but weren't you there when Michael Jordan won the championship? I, mean, I sat speaking of eyewitness side, to history. Um, at the... Uh, at the Chicago Bulls, um, first three, um, the three peat, the first three the first three peat. I was courtside on all those. There's that iconic shot of Michael hugging the the gold trophy. Yep. You know, yep. I was like ten steps behind that, watching that. My goodness. Funny enough, you know, my bosses assigned me to that because they knew I'm not a big sports guy, so they okay. go, like, "This guy's gonna pay attention to the news." Yeah, you called it the gold trophy. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. What was it called? It has a name. Whatever. Um, so yeah, I I got to do many amazing things like that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, that, I think that's that year I was also on the sidelines for the Super Bowl. And I was on the third baseline, um, on the green, on the grass for this World Series as well. It was a great year for sports coverage. Yeah, you did all the exciting yeah. news. But I can't, I can't tell you any of the details of what the sports. Yeah, you don't remember the game yeah. or what it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's so it's interesting. You you would like to continue to stay at that forefront of history and capturing and recording absolutely what's going to what what would have happened, what has happened. Yep. That's fascinating. But now you're in marketing. Yes. So you're telling stories from a different perspective now. You're telling stories, uh, rather than to capture them, you're telling stories to influence people, right? You're you're pushing them to make a decision on something, one way or the other. Yeah. Um, you know, I you use the right word, but I, I chafe at it a little bit. I'm not pushing them. I'm trying to pre- create interest, entice people. Fair enough. Um, I try to be a more um, enlightened marketer. Yeah. Um, so I work really hard to not do anything that's um, disingenuous or um, that's hiding any of the facts. I want to uncover, and, and this is what I tell my clients, so what I think my secret sauce is, is I help people uncover what I call the common thread, Okay. Um, which is that baseline value system that everyone, every product, every brand, every individual has that makes them who they are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want you to own that, and I want you to celebrate that. That and DNA. That DNA, and then I'll sell based on that. If mm-hmm. your DNA is good... I don't have to work too hard because you've already got a good story. Yeah. So I don't take on a lot of clients because a lot of clients, when you start pushing, they're like, uh, we're not really confident in our product. I'm like, well, you're not confident in me. Then I don't need to be with you. Yeah. That makes sense. So that makes sense. So, so you mentioned that you want to tell the facts and tell the story. Seth Godin, I've read 
some marketing books, but Seth Godin. All his books. Yeah, he he's incredible, yeah. right? But he he has the book All Marketers Tell Stories with the word liars scratched out. Mm. But he has a whole section in that book. He he devotes some time to that that idea of marketers should recognize their responsibility, what they're capable of doing, and and then they should make sure that they're doing it accurately and they're doing it ethically. Uh, what's what's your response to that? I mean, what do you think? Here, here, hundred percent. I think um, it should be written on the on the souls of all marketers. That that's mm-hmm. how you should do it. Mm-hmm. I understand the pressures that marketers face and trying to meet numbers, but again, I you know I just have I I put it all through the lens of who I am and how I approach the world. I give my all in everything that I do. So I never doubt. This is why, you know, many ways I'm, I, I don't like confidence. It's not that I'm cocky. It's that I work hard to be prepared. Yeah. So I want the brands that I work with to do the same thing. If your brand matters, if your brand can make an impact, a difference, a value, if it brings a smile to someone's face, let's celebrate that. Let's mm-hmm. lean into that. And then you're going to be fine. Yeah. Be authentic. Be real. Be truthful. Yeah. And it'll cut through. If I have to make a baloney. You're just going to get baloney back to you. That's right. That makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me, that we would make sure that we tell the truth, but that the truth would be embedded in the experiences of those who interact with the brand and so forth and so on. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you talked about being really passionate there. So I want to ask you, I know in your description that we read, your little bio that we read earlier, we talked about you being a dreamer, a wild one, but the phrase that sticks out, because I know you say it often, is that you're a roaring lamb. Why don't you give us the, the brief description of, you know, what... What is a roaring lamb? What do you mean by saying I'm a roaring lamb? What what is that? Sure. So I um, disclaimer again, I did not create that term. Um, a very smart guy by the name of Bob Breiner came up with that term and the philosophy behind this many years ago. Um, but I've certainly adopted that philosophy and adapted it to who I am. And in essence, here's what it says: I, I'm a I'm a believer in God. My life is a faith journey and a relationship with God, and everything that I do is driven by that. I believe that God creates people with gifts, talents, abilities, um, opportunities, ways to do things that are special to them. A roaring lamb says, "Use those talents to the most of your ability." without having to feel bad about that. Go for the maximum gusto on that. The lamb part is that you need to have grace and love and care and concern. So I'm I'm trying to live this life full throttle with love and concern driving behind the wheel as well. Yeah, and I think that is very important as a storyteller because it keeps you conscious of who you're telling the story to and what it might do to them as Absolutely. they tell the story. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Man, that's beautiful. So, Ugo, right now you're in marketing, but you're doing it for a specific organization. What can you tell us about what you're up to today with the not-for-profit in Puerto Rico? And, uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about that first? Yeah, so I run my own boutique um, company, and then I work also with a foundation called the Old Horizons Foundation. Mm-hmm. Old Horizons Foundation was founded with the belief that there are simple solutions to some of the world's hardest problems. Sometimes we just get in the way of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're dedicated is into uncovering solutions for access to clean water, access to energy, access to agricultural um, opportunities, and economic development. So we go around the world and we just try to find the smartest people, the smartest ideas, and make them accessible. In Puerto Rico, we went there after Hurricane Maria because we realized there was um, lack of clean water and there was lack of um, energy. And it wasn't that their power grids and stuff weren't being built. We're not trying to rebuild power grids. I'm trying to give someone a solution for right now so that they don't have to wait two years 
before they can go back to life. Yep. So we've been working at getting um, funding um, so that we can bring in solar-powered lights and battery chargers. And I'll be there next month as we're bringing in solar-powered fans because one of the things that happens in a tropical island is it gets hot at night. And if you're older or if you have any illnesses or something when you're in stagnant air, the propensity, the potential for you to get further ill or die is higher. Mm -hmm. So if I can bring you circulated air... Though people doubt that, right? People act like nothing nothing happened. So, but imagine me bringing a fan that's powered by the sun. So even if the power goes out, you're still going to be able to do this. You'll be okay. So we're doing that kind of work. And so we've um, helped more than 40,000 people in what we call last mile communities. Um, It's... Fairly easy to get some level of access to resources in the big cities. Mm-hmm. But when you go up into the mountains, when you go out into the barrios, you know, the little yep. villages that no one pays attention to, those people, man, are, we met a woman when I was there in um, July. She had been without any um, electricity in her home since two months before Maria because there was another smaller hurricane beforehand that people forget. So she had been going almost 12 months without any electricity in her wow. home. I, it, it baffles the mind mm-hmm. that we have people that are living there and, you know, just a, a, a one-hour flight to the U.S. and she still can't get that power. And a U.S. citizen. And a U.S. citizen. <laughs> so when we brought her, we brought her a solar home um, lighting kit and basically we put a panel up on her rooftop and it had four um, LED globes and all of a sudden her life was transformed she could not stop crying and the most meaningful thing is she had nothing she was in the middle of this little village and on top of a mountain top far from everything it took us an hour and a half to get there from the center of yabukoa to this little spot yeah she had nothing but she went out into her garden and ripped out uh, a berry tree and wrapped it up in some cloth that she had and gave it to us as a thank you that's amazing to to just honor us for the work that we had done for her yeah so, Growing lamb indeed. Oh my grace gosh. and empathy, but you also, you, you did the effort to get out that last mile to Absolutely. her. And I mean, those are the stories to tell. I think that shows the change and the cultural influence that reporters, marketers, storytellers in general are indeed. capable of having uh, in the world. So last question here as we wrap up. Sure. Um, how can people be involved in that? We, we do want to uh, give a quick plug and say, hey, here's how people can be involved in that foundation and help push the story forward. Uh, to get involved in Puerto Rico and do something beautiful. Sure. If you want to be involved specifically in Puerto Rico or anything that we're doing, ohorizons.org uh, slash Puerto Rico. We'll show you all the details that you need yep, to do. And we'll share that yeah, as well. We have a donation um, plug in there that you can hop out. Um, you know, We're doing work right now in Bangladesh, giving water to rural people. Um, folks don't realize most women in Bangladesh spend eight hours a day collecting clean water to to have Bangladesh is fairly landlocked and um, and so to spend eight hours a day just to get water mm-hmm. is baffling and for 50 bucks I can give a family clean water for the rest of their life that's amazing and you know how many times if you look back at a month 50 bucks you probably spent that between your Starbucks trips and you know yeah. getting you know popsicles and cool spots in <laughs> Logan Square that's you not know. happening at all anytime yeah. soon <laughs> so stuff like that it's just baffling how challenging the world is and how easy it is to be a part of a simple solution yeah and thanks for being a part of it thanks for telling those stories absolutely thanks for having me ugo it's been a gift to have you here at world last spoken we here at world last spoken focus on culture making as a full complex idea so we target everything related to culture making all the way through the city and one of the roles is the role of the storyteller so we're grateful that we had you here that we're able to speak good news into the cities that we make and that we continue doing that thank you my pleasure thanks 
If you enjoyed this interview with Hugo Perez, make sure to check out other articles and features on world.spoken.com. And when you're done, don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list so you stay up to date on news from World Outspoken.